My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the classical classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is composer, guitarist, and co-founder of Liminal Space Contemporary Music Ensemble, George Heathco. George, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So what will you be teaching me today? I wanted to take just a brief look at the music and work of Dutch composer Louis Andriessen Mm -hmm. and point out a few things to maybe show how he's helped shape the current landscape of contemporary classical music, both here in the States and abroad. Awesome. I like the sound of this. You had mentioned when we were talking before that he kind of he he was kind of the progenitor of the alt classical movement, but that maybe not a lot of people know that. Yeah, in uh, maybe some direct and indirect ways, uh, yeah. he actually gained a lot of notoriety in the 1970s as being one of the more prominent and outspoken Dutch composers. Uh, he's been influential, not really, well, not just as a composer, but also as an ensemble leader, a political activist, and you know, a composition teacher. And so, uh, through all of those different facets, uh, a number of performers and ensembles and composers uh, here in the States have sort of taken his path as a sort of a model for their own. Nice. So um, what, got, what got you interested in, in his stuff? Did you just hear it and go, wow, that's awesome? Or did, were, were you <laughs> studying? Or There was a master class that was held at University of Houston uh, my first year in grad school. And, you know, listening to it, it's one of those things where it's like a mini mi- a light bulb moment. Yeah. Uh, I grew up playing rock music and, you know, heavy metal and all sorts of pop styles outside what, of classical music. Wait, what kind of metal did you play? I would actually th- call it tech metal, which is sort of an <laughs> offshoot of uh, progressive metal and, you know, really... Are we, are we talking like Yngwie Malmsteen? Are we talking <laughs> like Cannibal Corpse? Are we talking Metallica? If if you uh, look at bands like uh, Meshuga or Dillinger Escape Plan, or okay, I also played guitar when I was younger, oh, and cool. I um, was very into the metal. Right, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <I've, laughs> then, I spent much time playing well, Randy Rhodes. Hopefully, you'll enjoy Andreessen's music. Okay, when I first cool. heard it. Uh, uh, Like I said, it was a light bulb moment because it seemed to capture a lot of that visceral experience that I had being in a band, but put it into a contemporary classical uh, idiom. Okay, I'm really excited about hearing some of this. Yeah. Obviously, it's it's important to know it, it ran contrary to a lot of the prevailing mainstream classical music in the establishment in the Netherlands. And he actually picks and pulls from all sorts of styles, uh, ranging from early medieval music to like post-bop and, and bebop music, jazz, uh-huh. and even some, some rock influence as well. 
And a lot of what he had written is is really sort of a result of the types of ensembles that he put together. Mm-hmm. So his music actually uh, was was written for these very idiosyncratic type of groups mm-hmm. made up of a lot of brass and and winds, not a lot of stringed instruments. He also incorporated and was one of the the, the first composers to really kind of make. Uh, as, as a full-time instrument, uh, electric guitars and electric basses. So a piece that might actually be a pretty representative work would be a work uh, called Hooktus. And it was actually written for his ensemble uh, of the same name. The, uh, the instrumentation is actually two amplified groups of pan flutes, uh, electric piano, bass guitar, percussion, and saxophones. Is this going to get, like, Jethro Tully? <laughs> uh Perhaps the the name of the piece uh, Hoktus, uh is actually taken from uh, one of the uh, big techniques that, that he's using called hocketing, which uh, dates back to medieval music. And essentially, it's like a melody or a set of chords uh-huh. that is actually broken up uh, and and placed uh, across the ensemble. Almost if you've been to church or seen uh, bell choirs different members of the bell choir each have their own notes or two notes to play and the the melody or the piece as a whole is sort of this cooperative action in which everybody has to play their notes at just the right time and it makes a chord yeah or it Uh, makes a melody and it makes something that you might normally think of only one person playing Uh and uh, it creates a really cool stereophonic sound overall and this piece is Hoktus, this is actually performed by uh, the group Bang on a Can. Okay. But in this, you could actually hear this uh, hocketing uh, left and right uh, mm-hmm. chord. Uh, you hear uh, one group playing on the right side of the uh, headphones or your speaker, and then left side is the, the other group. I see what you mean about the jazz influence. Right. You can hear something that actually sounds a lot like maybe like a like a blues scale uh-huh. of some sort. Um, so I'm hearing in the in the speakers it's going from you know like is that right. a is that a production thing or is this actually like say there's an orchestra set up playing this or a group set up playing this? It's uh, two groups of instruments that are actually spaced uh, to where they're facing each other uh, on the stage. So like Uh, as an audience you would get the same effect? Ideally, yeah. Uh, It would probably be most effective if the audience were placed either really close or almost in between the two ensembles so Mm -hmm. you can hear that that interplay back and forth. But then that, you know, uh, further the further you spread the, the instrumentalists apart, the, the more difficult and challenging the piece comes oh, yeah. to, to stay together. Yeah. But that actually brings up a really good point, and his music, some of the sounds and some of the, the approaches that, that he uh, employs are often um, making his, his performers do these very virtuosic feats. Mm-hmm. Um, so players are, are just essentially made to to perform you know, at, at full volume for, for long stretches of time. Uh-huh. It's great because a lot of his approach was to have this very democratized type of music making in which everybody had to 
essentially give their 100% in order for the effect to actually work. So it actually made uh, some sort of uh, political statement towards music making. Everybody had to be involved and everybody had to uh, put forth. Effort. Yeah, like so nobody nobody's the star. It's, exactly. it's the entire group. It was important to a lot of his music because he wanted uh, not only the performers to uh, to have this democratized type of sound, but for the audience member as well, it was a way to get into, as I mentioned earlier, that visceral experience in the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the things that made his ensembles. I think really appealing to American audiences is he oftentimes chose very unconventional uh, venues, things mm-hmm. like uh, protests and rallies, warehouses, and you know museum galleries, as opposed to concert halls and as opposed to like recital mm-hmm. halls. And so having this loud, you know, intense, in-your-face music was sort of a way to uh, help rally the troops. He sounds kind of like the. Um I don't know, sort of like the classical music version of, um, I don't know, I don't know why this is springing to mind, but I'm thinking about like Velvet Underground. Okay, yeah. How they were, they were sort of, they were just a very unique band in, in the, uh, the type of music they chose to play, but also like some of the places they chose to play and the people with whom they played and, right. and, um, it created a certain atmosphere that you might not have at, at other performances, but... Mostly in that they influence so many people now. So you were you were right. saying how Andreessen influenced so much of what's going on in like alt classical music today. Right, right. So so I keep throwing around this word alt classical, but I realize that maybe uh, not everyone has heard all of our shows. If you haven't, go listen to them now. Um, but we we've, we've done a show where we kind of touched on alt-classical, which is also called indie classical and lots of other things. George, maybe you could better explain the the movement or the whatever you call it better than I could? <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty difficult to define. I think uh, I will I will use the term hipster for a moment. <laughs> it, it, you know, if you're, if you're a hipster, you don't want to identify yourself as a hipster. So no. I think a lot of the uh, ensembles and composers in the alt-classical world uh, often maybe turn away from that term a little yes. bit. But uh, yes. a lot of the music is maybe derived from sources outside of the typical classical canon. So uh-huh. a lot of uh, rock music, a lot of uh, music from you know other cultures make its way into this, this alt-classical world. The instrumentation oftentimes uh, includes things like electric guitars and, and drum sets and you know maybe even the vocal style leaves uh, sort of the classical you know, bel canto tradition into more of a pop, you know, a straight mm-hmm. tone type of uh, technique. I think the entire idea of of this kind of branching out is that you, you know, you don't you don't like being confined to something, and yet we all have this need to sort of define things. Right. So, you know, you got to call it something. But <laughs> <laughs> there's there's contradictions there. Uh, uh, oddly enough, contradiction was something that that Andreessen uh, was particularly fond of. Uh, yeah. One one of his more popular pieces and well known pieces is called Distat. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the Republic. It's actually uh, based off of Plato's The Republic, and in this, Plato actually ends up writing about 
the use of certain modes or certain musical motifs, even musical instruments that have this ability to essentially change the course uh, politically of, you know, of a culture, of an environment. Mm -hmm. And some of what he writes seems just, you know, downright negative towards towards that, you know, uh, almost calling for musicians and composers to, to cease the, the experimentation to, so as to not ruffle feathers. And Andreessen constructs this, this very large 35-minute piece around uh, some of those ideas. And on one hand, he's kind of scoffing at the idea that music is able to produce that type of change. You mm-hmm. know? And so all of these things that in the Republic... Uh, you know, uh, these modes and and rhythmic shifts and all of these things that are talked about in a negative form, Andreessen just goes ahead and plows right through those, writes specifically in some of those modes or (laughs) uses some of those rhythmic devices. So on one hand, he's scoffing at at, uh, that assertion, but then on the other hand, he's actually, he, he really loves that idea that music could perhaps produce, it would be this catalyst for change. So did Andreessen, like, did he, so you said he was around, like, in the 70s-ish? Yeah, uh, I think a lot of his popularity began, you know, really with the 70s. He was born in 1939 to a family that is essentially the Von Trapp family of musicians and, and, you know, uh, musicianly people. His Uh mother was a professional pianist. His father was actually a well-known composer in Holland, Uh uh, Hendrik Andreessen. His brother, uh, Urian, was also a noted composer, as well as his sister, Cecilia. Wow. And, in fact, his his father and his brother were his first uh, composition teachers. Wow. Beginning when he was around 11. And so uh, the 1950s and 60s were sort of a period of experimentation for him in terms of compositional styles. He essentially experimented with number of different uh, types of uh, approaches, especially modernist approaches, uh, serialism, these textural types of pieces, improvisational music, something uh, in which, you know, maybe uh, elements of the music were kind of left more up to the performer. Uh-huh. Uh, and Reason actually was, uh, and is still, uh, just a, a huge fan of just improvisation. Maybe not in the typical approach that we might think of, like with, with jazz improvisation, but things like gestures, um, actual movements on the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, so improvisation was was a very large chunk of this early experimentation, and uh, as well as collage, uh, which sounds musically like what you might visually see on on really? on, a, on a on a picture somewhere. Um, huh. Taking various styles and genres, even particular pieces, and actually juxtaposing or setting on top of each other, you know, in uh, kind of an extended fashion. Uh, you may be familiar with Luciano Berio's Sinfonia. Yes. Uh, one of the <laughs> movements of Berio's Sinfonia mm-hmm. is a uh, large movement of collage. We actually, we featured that on a program that we did on the history of the remix. Right. And, and we, we featured that, that part 
because it was, you know, a remix. So. <laughs> Interesting so. to note that uh, Andreessen was actually studying with Luciano Berrio around the time of that piece. I was totally and, going to say yeah. that the last piece sounded kind of like Berrio. Yeah, and that's uh, it's probably no, no coincidence. With Andreessen's music, you may have noticed some amount of, of repetition, mm-hmm. um, very similar to what we might think of as, as minimalism. Andreessen actually became really interested in, in minimalist techniques, you know, starting around the 70s, and actually incorporated that repetitive cellular type of style into his music. <laughs> this piece, Demeterier, uh is uh, a, a really good example of something that I identify with it, with Andreessen's music. It's loud, it's brassy, mm-hmm. it's got this big clashy chord, yeah. uh, and the whole opening to this movement is uh, 144 repetitions of the same chord. 144 uh, repetitions? 144, yes. Is that purposeful, the 144, 12 times 12? Like, is that... uh, I don't know that it's 12 times 12, but uh, the the piece is, it, uh, as with a lot of his music, very mathematically approached okay. in terms of proportions. So uh, something that sets out proportionally for the rest of the piece is found uh, Okay. with this 144. The timing's kind of weird, or am I just hearing things? No, you're, you're hearing that correctly. The... Uh, Chords start off spaced pretty far apart, and as it progresses through these repetitions, they start to get closer and closer together. The repetitions become faster and, uh, you know, much more energized. Uh-huh. Um, when there's like the first very large uh, harmony change, chord change, it, it feels like a big impactful moment following all of this build up on that same chord. I wasn't expecting that. Big, brassy, in-your-face type of sound. That has got to be so hard to perform as a, as a group, like to get that syncopation, I mean, to, to be synced up like that. Exactly. To time it right, um, to keep the energy going, right, the same dynamic level. Uh-huh. Um, it's very difficult. So I'm really interested in finding out who is drawing on Andreessen's work. Other composers, or sorry, other composers and ensembles, rather, uh, Bang in a Can, yeah. that's uh, one of the most obvious groups that's taken influence. Um, there's a, a really neat thing that happens with uh, ensembles, actually, following Andreessen. Uh, he wrote pieces for specific groups and oftentimes required these very idiosyncratic you know, ensembles that were only... Uh, aligned to to that one piece that he had composed. So um, (laughs) that makes it really difficult to to have your works performed. And so a number of ensembles actually formed, you know, based off of instrumentation for his pieces uh, Mm -hmm. so they could actually perform those works. But then they actually expanded beyond that Mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, commission works from other composers. Mm -hmm. And one such uh, group is a group called Icebreaker that uh, formed to play uh, Hoktus, the uh, piece we really? heard earlier. Um, so, so the entire group 
began just to play this one piece. Correct. In college, they all got together and they wanted to play that piece. They enjoyed working together, uh-huh. so they they formed Icebreaker. That's so cool. again, that's uh, two groups of amplified uh, pan flutes, electric piano, uh, bass guitar, uh, percussion, and saxophone. And Icebreaker also in- includes accordion and, and violin as well. <laughs> one of the pieces that I that I brought in is a piece by Michael Gordon. He's a co-founder of Bang on a Can. And he had written this piece for Icebreaker called Yo Shakespeare. And uh, it's really good. I think I think it's a really good example of, of his style. And you can hear a lot of Andreessen's influence just in the rhythmic propulsion, these uh, polyrhythmic things that are happening between different groups in the ensemble, repetition on, on like a single idea or a single phrase. And I think just the overall visceral experience of just listening to some of this like in-your-face aggressive music, uh, yeah. very typical of Andreessen's music and Michael Gordon's music. Hmm. There's there's a lot of rhythmic energy in which like these different groups are playing mm-hmm. rhythms and and sets of rhythms that don't line up with uh, the other <laughs> other groups in sort of a way that we're used to hearing or used to feeling. Hmm. Creates a, a, a Kind of a, a, a very, I don't know. The, the feel to me is, is, is it, it feels like almost like cloud-like. You, you have no real footing as to where uh, yeah. time is, where one is. You feel like you're just floating through these rhythms. Yeah. Uh, even though there are like these these propulsions, like very strong hits, strong uh, rhythmic you know units that are clearly marking where uh, where a beat would be. You don't mm-hmm. feel to me personally. I don't feel that there's a steady ground. <laughs> Yeah, it's very, um, it's very geometric. It's like you're inside of a weird shape that's being made. Oh, now I'm hear- hearing the flute. I was like, you kept talking about pan flute, and I was like, there is no flute in this. That's so neat. I like the sound of that. I like the idea of the geometric patterns, too, the shapes. Uh, I think that's uh, right in line with a lot of the techniques for how a lot of this music is uh, created. You know, a lot of times mathematics actually plays into composing these types of works. I can't speak for Yoke Shakespeare (laughs) uh, (laughs) completely, um, but, you know, oftentimes, you know, especially with with minimalism and, you know, this more alt classical or, or even like post-minimalism mm-hmm. uh, type of sound. As I mentioned with the Andreessen piece, you know, it's where proportions are set up mm-hmm. mathematically throughout a piece in order for something to, to line up. Maybe outside what we might think of as a typical phrase, mm-hmm. right? But produces, again, these, these types of shapes that you're talking about. You yeah. Know, things that are flowing in and out of each other. I think this kind of music sounds really exciting. It, it always seems to have like a, um, a sort of urgency to it <laughs> you know I, I, I don't know what that is but but like in uh, in minimalist pieces that I've heard and in, in this music that you've introduced me to today like there's this sort of n- nameless urgency to like this music just sort of spontaneously burst out of nowhere and has right. to be made I use the, uh, the phrase audacious music a <laughs> lot when I'm thinking of this because it's you're right it's very direct yeah. Um, and it seems that the composers uh, and, and these ensembles, when they're presenting the work, uh, you're right, they have something to say, but it's, you know, sometimes the thing that they're saying is not the most popular <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> yeah. But, but these composers are, you know, in your face saying it directly to yeah. you. Yeah, this is no you know. tender Sarah McLachlan music. Yeah, and, is... and it's, you know, 
it's completely unabashed, you know, repetition on some of this stuff. This approach, especially with Andreessen's music, is uh, it's very purposeful. As I was saying, it, it was often played at you know rallies, at demonstrations. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh, a means to gather the masses. You know, in, in some sort of way that only you know classical music that's loud and in your face can <laughs> actually urge folks on. So, was he sort of politically? Politically charged. Yeah. Like, personally, was... was Yeah. You know, on one hand, the the politics that he's engaged in is, like, the politics of classical music and how the major orchestra in town, uh, in uh, in the Netherlands, the Concertgebouw, is sort of the large ensemble that that everybody kind of looks to. Mm -hmm. And uh, the music was maybe more conservatively programmed than Andreessen would have liked, uh, oftentimes neglected modern music. And so there was some political activism, you know, uh, directed towards that. And then, of course, around the time of the Vietnam War, uh, Andreessen got involved in demonstrations that were protesting specifically America's involvement in the Vietnam War. I see. Okay, so that that's the political, like the rallies that you're talking about. Oh, yes, uh, yeah. there's there's those rallies, and it's actually sort of a funny anecdote with his activism and the classical music politics. Uh, he and uh, a, a group of other composers were in this group called the Nutcrackers, <laughs> and they sort of made it their mission to go in and disrupt uh, classical music performances. <laughs> uh, November 17th, 1969, at the Concert there's a, uh, I believe it was a flute concerto that was being performed. And so Andreessen and his fellow Nutcrackers showed up to the concert uh, with slide whistles, penny whistles, and various, you know, clackers and shakers and things, noisemakers, and essentially disrupted the performance and were, you know, forcibly uh, removed. <laughs> And they did that a number of times, uh, and on one occasion uh, they were arrested and they served a one-week-long jail sentence for for disrupting. And his music, I think, is something that was was really influential uh, to to a lot of people because of its direct uh, approach, the direct sound that he got out of it, Uh, but he was also a well-known teacher of composition, so... Uh, a number of his students are actually currently working in this alt-classical world. Uh, really? Yeah, itself. So, um, composers like Missy Mazzoli, another composer, Kate Moore, mm-hmm. uh, she's an Australian composer. Oscar Bettison, um, one thing that, that really pops up in a lot of his music that I've heard is just these like this uh, focus on long-term singular ideas, right? He spends a lot of time on maybe one specific Mm -hmm. Uh, idea. It might be sort of the basis behind an entire movement or an entire piece, right? But it's it's very focused. Um, There's repetition, but a lot of times it's very loose repetition, like it's not repeating the same phrase or the same rhythm over and over again, but it might be, say, the same pitch material gets repeated. This is him playing right now? Yes. This is a piece called Oh Death. Uh, Oh Death. Oh Death. You... electric bass. Well, it's actually an electric guitar that's got oh. um, an octave pedal that's dropped it oh. an octave lower. 
Um, and that is a construction site. <laughs> Somebody's, you know, working inside of a piano. Uh, <laughs> Tiny the strings. And of angry, course, you could hear the saxophones wailing. Yeah. Aggressive, forceful rhythms. That's sort of yeah. how, I, how I describe some of this. Uh, with the ensemble and the approach, this particular piece, Oh Death, you know, it actually explores a lot of different... Uh, I think different styles like Andreessen's music you know it's the contradiction of uh, a lot of times having this this huge amount of energy and drive you know uh, juxtaposed to something that is very static mm-hmm. very slow going uh, and so that's you hear that all throughout Bettison's Oh Death mm-hmm. I mean, it's an hour-long piece really yeah an hour-long exploration of it's it written, uh, despite not having, you know, uh, vocals or, or any vocal ensembles in there, it's actually written uh, loosely around the idea of being a requiem. Huh. Uh, so it, it explores uh, Mozart's requiem in, in a very abstract way. Yeah. So what I think is, is kind of interesting about a lot of, you know, contemporary classical music is is the, the sort of themes that it seems to be exploring. Mm-hmm. Like... A lot of it's very dark, kind of focused on the, this very urban, intellectual, right? You know, sort of, sort of mindscape. You know, everything's very neurotic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and uh, I think that's it speaks a lot to what's going on in our culture now. It's it's definitely the soundtrack to definitely. you know what you feel like when you're stuck in a traffic jam or <laughs> when you're you know not a special snowflake in a crazy downtown crowd you know right. walking along and everybody's on their cell phones and yeah but yeah i definitely think there's there's a lot of that just these darker themes uh i think you hit it on the head with the idea of you know these urban soundscapes right um yeah. one of the last things i want to play uh i i keep mentioning bang in a can because i as i was saying i think that's probably the more obvious uh ensemble but one of the other co-founders uh david lang um one of the composers uh, is actually modeled a lot of his style off of just this really highly repetitive singular idea approach that Andreessen uh, has, has kind of put out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lang's music is, is uh, definitely minimalist. Uh, it's very uh, it's very repetitive, right? But uh, again, has that that angular uh, kind of clashy dissonance yeah. to it uh, that we're finding in Andreessen's music. This particular piece uh, is called Pierced. I like this one specifically because you hear a string orchestra that's mm. underneath and supporting uh, this ensemble of uh, vibraphone, piano, and cello. Mm-hmm. And those three instruments are playing this just, uh, really charged rhythmic uh, unit that sounds a lot like something that would have been found in, say, Frank Zappa's music. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's funny, even in the score uh, for that part, uh, Zappa-esque <laughs> is, is written as one of the... <laughs> really? <laughs> one of the markings. I like that sound of the vibraphone and the piano playing together. That's yes. kind of neat. It's very... Yeah, it, it, it's very metallic sound. Yeah. Uh, 
Now, I mentioned the idea of mathematics. This piece uh, uh, is, is really uh, interesting in the way the, the rhythms work because that, that really cool angular and uh, very syncopated line that you're hearing with the piano and vibraphones, there's a specific rhythm that they're playing that goes to a specific set of numbers, like uh, a grouping of three followed by four followed by five, four, three, two, three, four. Mm -hmm. And it's a specific rhythm that uh, lasts for... Uh, gosh, I can't remember the, the number of beats, but it's it's set in stone, uh, mm -hmm. and they repeat this rhythm, uh, you know, obsessively throughout the piece. But that same rhythm governs what you also hear. And if you listen closely, there's a bass drum, a kick drum, that hits. And every time that kick drum hits, it's taking that same rhythmic idea that's presented with the uh, those three instruments, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but it's actually elongated it now, and it's it's made it into a much longer version but it's the same uh, ratio same proportions My God. and the strings that are playing the uh, the strings again same thing it's the same rhythm but augmented and made much larger but mm -hmm. it's the same proportions and the same same design that is too much math too much <laughs> math is happening in this music but you don't you don't necessarily hear it as math and i think that's important to note in listening to this like that math and all of that stuff doesn't necessarily have to influence the listener so much yeah. i mean it just it's it's used as process to create the music but um not necessary for a listener to, to really be in the know i think that's puzzling about maybe i don't know puzzling it's it's i think about this a lot with with contemporary um, classical where it's it, it seems almost as if a lot of it is not necessarily made for listening but for performing right it's almost like it's a it's about process it's about performance it's perhaps not for listening to at home <laughs> unless you I, I don't know I, I personally can't see listening to it at home it's not right. something that I would you know want to sing along to or yeah you know. I, I guess it I guess it also depends on what it is that you see music being used for sure well I think that's a tricky subject because I think each composer is obviously going to have his or her own opinion of what he or she expects of the audience and and mm -hmm. of the performers you know some of this music is you know I mentioned Missy Mazzoli, uh, yeah. one of Andreessen's students. Her music is very much approached from um, just the experience of, you know, herself actually listening to and being involved in a lot of, you know, pop music. Mm -hmm. And so it actually, it's, it's, it's rather direct and, and actually hits and sounds, you know, very similar and close, closely aligned to pop music, although it still has a lot of the same type of process, yeah. you know, underlying a lot of the, uh, the music. But then there's, there's stuff that's, um, almost entirely process-driven that, you know, is some sometimes really challenging to listen to that the composers, you know, wanted to put the listener in some sort of, you know, uncomfortable experience. experience. But it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's different for everybody. And yeah. it's, it's just, it's a matter of uh, uncovering stones and yeah. uh, uh, uncovering, you know, all of these things hidden, but, but it's all out there. But in taste too, it's a matter, it's a matter of sure. taste. Like this yeah. might, this might sound like happy music to someone who is not me. <laughs> so, so Andreessen, like when we were talking before, you had said that, that he, he's influenced a lot of people, mm -hmm. but he's kind of not that well known like he was a right. he seems like he was kind of a behind the scenes guy and maybe still is you said he was still still living yeah he's still living um 
in uh, in Europe uh, and in you know like the New York scenes, I think he's definitely got much more of a, a of a prominent <laughs> name, yeah. and there's much more of a uh, wider audience for his music. But uh, yeah, definitely, I, I think because of the types of ensembles that he writes for, it doesn't get performed nearly mm-hmm. as often as you know as maybe he would like. And so, yeah, the name isn't as familiar. Although in Washington, D.C., in uh, April, there is a giant week-long celebration for Andreessen's 75th birthday. Andreessen Fest. Yes, Andreessen 75. So there's actually going to be a week-long festival of, you know, uh, performances and activities based around his music. So Everybody go out and see that. Yes. So I'll fly out to Washington, D.C. together. (laughs) George, thanks so much for coming on to the show today. This is, I, I really love being introduced to um, especially contemporary classical stuff. Um, I don't know, it, it seems to, like I connect a little more with it personally than, than um, some of the uh, sort of traditional yes. classical music. Well, I think that's very lovely. It doesn't like connect with me personally. So this, is, this has been really cool. It's cool to hear. Yeah. Well, um, you have to come back. And teach me more about this. I, kind hope, of music. I hope to be invited back. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. This has been fun. Yeah. Um, so uh, you guys may have heard, if you've been listening to the show for a while, that I have made a New Year's resolution to go out and see more classical music shows. And um, if you go to our webpage, which is classical917.org backslash classroom, there are instructions on there for how to make uh, your case as to why I should come and see your show because, of course, I'm very busy and I can't go to them all, but, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to come to some. So, so uh, convince me and I'll come see your stuff. And we'll, uh, we'll share your pitch with our listening audience. Also, P.S., a lot of you listen to us through iTunes. If you have not yet reviewed or rated our show, do it. What are you waiting for? Uh, if you want to hear past episodes or see what's coming up on this show, you can also go to that webpage that I just said, classical917.org backslash classroom. If you want to hear anything addressed on this show, send me an email at dclay at classical917.org. I think that's it. Yep. All right. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.